It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 111, David Counts the Fighting Man. After the rebellions of Absalom and Sheba, it appears David settles in for a time of prosperity and peace in Jerusalem. The consequences of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah have come and gone, and it appears David has settled into his new renewed role of father and able administrator of his kingdom. I get the take, the heavy shame has lifted for substantial periods of time, and a ridiculous prosperity befalls the land. We mentioned back about the mass population increase in Israel. Check this out. We'll learn in this episode, Israel has a militia force of 1.3 million men, which is just staggering considering when Saul tore apart the oxen and threatened Israel back in the Nahash episode, 300,000 showed up for the fight. Over a four times multiplier in a generation Israel has experienced. If we estimate five times more for women and children, we're at a population of 6.5 million in the region of Israel in David's time. Israel's roughly the size of New Jersey and the fifth smallest state in the United States, and with a current population of close to 9 million people. Beyond the estimated 6.5 million at this time in David's life, some scholars actually estimate that David's population for Israel was around 9.3 million, which is actually the current population for Israel. Considering this amazing population boom, we can point to the stability of the land and the power of peace and point to a land entering its golden age. But in one of our final episodes on David's life, we can point to a lesson in pride and possibly greed. David, who's always fought his battles outnumbered, always achieved victory through his faith in God, found himself relying and finding his strength in his current blessings and numbers versus those of the strength of his God. In this episode, we discuss the error of David of counting the fighting men and the spirit of intercession that ends the crisis and the type and shadow of Jesus Christ in this episode. Before we cover the story, I've got to point out a biblical anomaly for some, but a treasure and clue for others. In this account, David calls a census to number his people. Is it a sin to call a census? No. He did it before. How else do we know the number of his soldiers in Adullam? Because previously, God wanted him to know his numbers and have faith because God would perform miracles with this few men. But now that David's population has boomed, any fears cannot be answered in David's heart with his own strength and in numbers, but with the true power of God. 
So David's aging, and he'll die around the age of 70, unlike most heroes of the past. And this is one of his final acts. So we picture David in his 60s in this episode. And though he commits a fatal error, we will see one of the greatest pictures of intercession in the entire Old Testament. And we get a really cool type and shadow painted of the death of Christ. Here we go. 1 Chronicles 21. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commander of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me that I may know how many there are. So isn't this wild? The devil rose up against Israel and incited David to pride and to count the, not, the fighting men. So this was from First Chronicles. What about Second Samuel 24, which was written by a different author? Second Samuel 24. And again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Crazy, huh? That Second Samuel reads the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David to pride. Which one is right? Both. Let me explain. I read this about 10 years ago in the NIV New Application Study Bible footnotes. It reads, the ancient Hebrew writers didn't distinguish between primary and secondary sources, which is just crazy, but it helps to explain things. One says God, the other says the devil. Which one is right? Well, both. David's heart still beat for God, but he suffered from an open door of pride as he emerged on the victorious side of his life, and pride infected him as he looked back on all that he had done in his life. Not all that God had done through him, but all that he had done. It was a subtle lie, but powerful as it grew into a mindset that drifted him away from God. Pride occurs when self-confidence becomes a God complex, and self-centeredness controls a person's thoughts and actions. So going back to the differing verses, putting both sentences together, we can get a fuller picture. Satan rose up against Israel and pulled upon the pride inside David's heart and incited him to count the men by taking a census, which caused the anger or better yet judgment of the Lord to burn against Israel, which the devil took his full permission to kill, steal, and destroy from David and Israel. And if we want a better understanding, it's in the book of Job where we get a clearer picture of those primary and secondary causes. The devil's assignment, of course, is to kill, steal, and destroy, while God is the source of all goodness and blessing. It is in Job where we see the devil is only permitted access to a believer by God. This permission must be allowed by God or surrendered through sin like Adam and Eve. The devil uses his open doors into people's lives through sin. In this case, the devil had the open door of pride that permeated David to such a point that the lie to convince David to number the men wasn't really a big deal. For further commentary on the concept of pride in counting the men, I'm going to go back to our reference to the NIV New Application Study Bible footnotes. 
says, what was wrong with taking a census? A census was commanded in Numbers to prepare an army for conquering the promised land. Numbers 1, 2, and 26, 2. A census amounted to a draft of conscription for the army. The land was now at peace, so there was no need to enlist the troops. Israel had extended its borders and become a recognized power. David's sin was pride and ambition in counting the people so that he could glory in the size of his nation and army, its power and defenses. By doing this, he put his faith in his army rather than in God's ability to protect them regardless of their number. Even Joab knew a census was wrong, but David did not heed this advice. We sin in a similar way when we place our security in money, possessions, or the might of our nation. 2 Samuel 24, 2 So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go through the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. 2 Samuel 24, 8 After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there was 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000 men. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. So to be clear, a population census is not demonic. And the counting of people is not evil. It's basic demographics and the basics of civil administration, budgeting, accounting, and to know your population so that you can serve the people in justice and administer the needs of your people. But God had something else in mind for this day and age and group of people. Here's what Moses wrote about taking a census. Exodus 30:11. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, Each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, which raised 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than half a shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. Can't help but notice the words. When you take a census to count them, each one must pay the Lord's ransom. Then no plague will come on you. Did it really say that? The plan was for Israel to have accounting before entering the promised land, and then they would pay a half shekel, which is approximately $250 today. Taking this times our far-out estimate of 9.3 million people, and let's just say it was really 10 million people, David would have collected the equivalent of $2.5 billion. 
which leads me to suggest David's motives may have been more than pride, but also greed. Maybe he thought this was required to find the funds to provide for Solomon's future temple instead of relying on God to provide the funds. Instead, he pursued the funds through a census, whose funds were reserved to be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for their lives. Now God's judgment burns against Israel. 2 Samuel 24, 11. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but not let me fall into the human hands. Okay, in essence, it appears David chooses the plague because he'd rather fall into the hands of God instead of man. Most applaud this answer, and it's obviously the best of the three. But think with me here, because we don't see the old David in this episode until later. Now imagine with me that a police officer pulls you over, and you're caught speeding, and the police officer says you are busted, and you know it, and he says you have an op- three options. Pay an exorbitant fine, or face weeks of community service, or lose your license for a week. What would you say to this man in authority? Hurry. He's in authority, and you must decide. No pressure. Hurry up. Make your decision. Is it A, pay the fine, B, community service, or C, lose your license for a week? Hurry. No pressure. I have to believe the David who brought the tabernacle into his tent the David who took Jerusalem and the David who worshipped in the wilderness and who got away with eating the showbread at Nob, and the man who was called after God's own heart could have cried out for D, mercy, and D, no ticket. But his heart was too far from this place of constant communion with God and devotion. Don't get me wrong, his heart was with God, but his heart over the years had fallen away and his heart was not prepared to fight this battle and wrestle with God over the souls of his people until he was moved with mercy himself when the calamity was at its climax. Though option D wasn't offered, isn't mercy and grace the weakness of a good father in heaven or any father? Isn't mercy and grace what David learned about God's character? He didn't even push back for mercy or grace. He just chose the plague. Now the calamity strikes. Take note it says the Lord sends a plague. And let's remember that the NIV study Bible footnote that the Hebrew writers didn't always distinguish between primary and secondary sources. Look at it like this. David's sin gave over legal permission for a demonic angel whose spiritual sword brought down a calamitous plague that brought nearly instant destruction to humans. Here is Josephus' account of this plague. I've never read of anything like it in human history. It's like something out of Revelation. Now the miserable disease was one indeed, but it carried them off by ten 
thousand causes and occasions, which those that were afflicted could not understand. For one died upon the neck of another, and the terrible calamity seized them before they were aware, and brought them to their end suddenly, some giving up the ghost immediately with very great pains and bitter grief. And some were worn away by their distempers, and had nothing remaining to be buried. But as soon as ever they fell were entirely macerated. Some were choked, and greatly lamented their cause, as being also stricken with a sudden darkness. Some there were, who, as they were bearing a relation, fell down dead, without finishing the rites of the funeral. Now there perished of this disease, which began with the morning, and lasted till the hour of dinner, seventy thousand. Nasty, huh? The biblical account continues, First Chronicles 21.14. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and seventy thousand men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough, redraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extending over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell face down. I mean, you've got to consider this scene and try to picture it. Are you serious? There's a visible angel with a drawn sword standing between heaven and earth. You've got to use your imagination to even come to grips with it. In fact, I thought about trying to start this episode with the dramatic look of this scene, but how do you do this? An angel standing over Jerusalem between heaven and earth with a drawn sword? I didn't even try. This angel must have been huge, standing way above the city in the place near David's tabernacle on the land of Aruna the Jebusite, who had previously found favor in David's eyes. Now this plot of land where the angel was standing, according to most scholars, was the site of Mount Moriah, where Abraham nearly killed Isaac, where Solomon's future temple will be built, and depending on many, and contrary to some recent research, lays the current Islamic Dome of the Rock. So the angel has to be gigantic, with this sword about to swipe through Jerusalem with the plague. Gotta imagine the sheer fear in the air, and the fact that David and others could see this angel with the sword must have been greatly terrifying. David must have fallen completely prostrate at this moment on the ground as he prayed. First Chronicles twenty one seventeen. David said to God, Was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I the shepherd have sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Lord my God, let your hand fall on me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. Okay, isn't this such a picture of intercession? Abraham tried to atone for Sodom by asking for mercy declaring that there was at least 10 good people in Sodom. Here is David standing in the gap for his people. 
No, instead, take me and my life, David declares. Ha oh, what a type and shadow. Abraham offered his son and only son a promise on the altar in the same place. Here's David willing to give his own life for his people. Jesus would willingly go to the cross for all sins, for all time, to atone for his people. But unlike Jesus, yet like Abraham, God gave David a way out. Second Chronicles 21:20. While Aruna was threshing wheat, he turned and saw the angel. His four sons were with them, and they hid themselves. Then David approached, and when Aruna looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said, Let me have the sight of your threshing floor, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at full price. Aruna said to David, Take it. Let my lord the king do whatever pleases him. Look, I have given the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all this. But David replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the lord what is yours, or sacrifice a burnt offering that cost me nothing. So David paid Aruna six hundred shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord spoke to the angel, and he put his sword back in its sheath. Okay, once that angel put his plague sword back in its sheath, I bet there was such a moan of relief from everyone. For Jerusalem was principally saved. The ordeal was over and atonement had been made. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I'd like to take a look at the consequences of David's decisions and the way of kings and how their decisions flow down and impact their society. Leaders and kings of this world must understand the weight of their actions. In the case of David, he was the king of his people. And his decision to count the people led to the death of 70,000 men. In this scene, 70,000 die because of one dumb decision. As leaders and preachers and mothers and fathers, politicians and teachers, or whatever place you hold, we must understand our decisions impact all of those around us, but in greater measure, those who are under our authority. You are more powerful than you realize in the spiritual realm. The physical authority you possess is symbolic of the spiritual authority you possess. In the case of David, his decisions as the spiritual covering of his nation invited spiritual blessings or spiritual curses. I picture it like this. Say you're a pastor, and if you are a blessing and you walk with God, the special gifts and the walk and the relationship that you have with God flows down and touches your congregation. Those same gifts and relationship with God invites those same blessings on others to come upon them and those in your church if they accept them. But continuing our pastor example, the same goes for sin. If a pastor is in sin, this sin opens a door for those who are under this pastor to be not in sin, but to be more susceptible and allow and to have more temptation than there should be. I picture covering like a shield that a pastor holds over his flock. But when the pastor is in sin, this shield becomes more like a strainer and extra arrows of temptation flow through, making it harder than it should be for those to resist evil. 
Beyond the temptation part and spiritual covering, David faced judgment. For according to 1 Peter 4.17, judgment begins with the house of God. 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Your decisions can impact nations for good or bad. Your word can propel good change or negative outcomes. Just as David counted his men in disobedience, we can make similar errors by trusting in things that are outside of God. It's important we take stock of our lives and our heart and make sure we do not allow those dark seeds of pride and lust or whatever they are to take root in our hearts. We must be watchful at the darkness that tries to tear down our trust and relationship with God. Our strength must be found in God and God alone. We're going to see other examples of pride and those who take their strength in their own hands all through biblical history. Later in our story, when the leaders of Judah are threatened with annihilation, they'll make payoff of monies and even strip the gold off the temple of Solomon, hoping to buy peace, hoping their actions will buy them or purchase them peace and achieve their goals. God has always told the people of Israel their strength was in God alone. And it is still no wonder Israel is one of the worst places on the planet to defend. Being below historical empires like the Hittites, Assyrians, and Babylonians, and north of the Egyptians, only prayer and faith in God could save them repeatedly throughout history. Despite the failed use of option D, mercy, David's error sets up the historical precedent for future leaders to learn from. Our strength must be in God, not our military or our numbers. Same goes for every empire in all of world history. Like Apostle Paul said from Athens, times and seasons and boundaries of nations are set apart by God. Israel's state and success was a consequence of their faithfulness in God and their faithfulness of their leader David. Let us never forget our strength is found in God and God alone. Let us never forget we find our strength in the one whose word alone can halt the sword of death over a city. May we never depart from the wisdom learned by those who walk before us that the Lord our God is our rock and our salvation. No other should we fear. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we discuss the legacy of David and his final actions as king. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.